Olasu. This morning we continue with meditative cultivation of compassion. And once again, we try to bring as much wisdom to this as we possibly can, because the the natural tendency, the habitual tendency individually and then collectively when witnessing suffering and wishing to alleviate it uh, is to address the symptoms. And so symptoms when you see people are starving or they have ill health or they don't have enough education, poor clothing, shelter, and so forth, then addressing it right there. And that's where pretty much all the money goes. Almost all the money goes there to addressing the symptoms, very understandably. But really the core of the Buddha's teachings is, while acknowledging that we all want to be free of suffering, the real thrust is, what are the underlying causes? Where do we really get to the root? So that we're not just always patching up, always just addressing symptoms, 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 which is an easy thing to do. It's really, that fundamentally was why I decided not to follow another career that I think would have been very meaningful, and that was environmental, environmental work, environmental activism, ecology, and so forth, enormously important, and enormously important there are people in that profession. But it just struck me more than 40 years ago is that the underlying problems for the ecological imbalances that are created by human beings are actually lie in the human mind. That's, that's where the root is, not just in behavior or industry or Republican Party or Democratic Party and so forth and so on. It's in the mind, and if, unless we're addressing that individually and collectively, then all the rest, all kind of environmental activism and legislature and all of that will be treating the symptoms without getting to the underlying causes. And so if we, if we apply a Buddhist analysis, which we are very familiar with, so I'll be very brief, underlying causes, especially of that suffering that we experience that is created by humans for humans, you know, tends to trace back to Greed, attachment, craving, as mental afflictions. And then, of course, when this, this craving, this attachment, is in any way threatened or impeded, that is, we already have it, and there seems to be a, a threat that it could be taken away, or we want it, and something's getting in the way, then the, the dark shadow of craving and attachment arises, and that's hostility. Hatred, aggression, naturally, easily giving rise to violence. Inevitably. I mean, sooner or later, it's going to give rise to violence. And then underlying all of that, that is these two great prongs of attachment and, and hostility, underlying that, this grasping onto I and mine as I being something autonomous, separate, and then I really have mine, and then these sharp demarcations of I and mine versus everything else, you and yours, they and theirs. And so now we're set for just the perpetual, how do you say, perpetual perpetuation of suffering. And so to address the causes, we must address them right at this level. And this could be, when, when see, I don't think I've said anything religious here. All of this, these are empirical claims. They're either true or false, but they can be studied. It'd be marvelous. I would love to see just billions of dollars going into research on, are these the true causes of suffering or not, of human-created suffering? And then billions more dollars going into, how do we bring this into the education system from preschool on, that little children are taught that Self-centered craving and attachment really isn't good for you. And hostility and aggression and so forth really just creates misery for everybody. And although we all exist, of course, and you can be a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu or an atheist, whatever, but how you don't exist is something absolutely autonomous, separate. This is a psychological fact, a neurophysiological fact, a contemplative fact. 
There it is. Investigate it. So that would be addressing the causes. But now let's go, since we're tapping into not only karuna or immeasurable compassion, but we're tapping into seeking to cultivate the, the seeds of great compassion. Let's now just slip this over into Mahayana. And we'll see that nothing, nothing that I just said is contradicted. But now there's something, again, like Russian dolls. There's one doll I've just described, but, but now here's a larger view that embraces everything I've said thus far. But I do believe, as a follower of the Mahayana Buddhism, that it goes to even greater depth. And that is beyond this bifurcation of craving on the one hand, hostility on the other. There's something that goes even beyond the demarcation of the pursuit of hedonic well-being versus eudaimonic or genuine happiness. And that is what I referred to yesterday, self-centeredness. The self-centered attitude, the sense of prioritization upon one's one's own well-being, whether as a meditator in the ardent, fiery pursuit of genuine happiness and liberation, or whether it's simply as a greedy businessman. My my business first, me first, my country first, and so forth. This self-centeredness, as Shantideva points out, speaking for the whole Mahayana tradition, the self-centered attitude, the sense that my well-being is most important, and then mine, there's, they're, they're, they're also important, and then just going out to people who are just not important at all, to then out, out, out to those people who are actually Im- impeding my well-being, and they should be annihilated, or at least suppressed. And that's the agenda of self-centered, self-centered view. Right? So it's an absolutely concentric view of oneself in the center as one's own well-being being paramount. So I mentioned that side of the equation yesterday. That's the, if it were, if it were, well, I'll just leave it at that. That's the active, the dynamic mode or attitude that gives rise to an enormous amount of suffering. But the complementary side, the other side of the coin, is what's called grasping onto inherent nature grasping onto inherent existence. Sounds very philosophical, abstract. Sounds like maybe one philosopher would debate this and the other way and debate that. But in the Madhyamaka view, they say, well, this is not, this is not, this is not a parlor game. I, I'm, I'm troubled sometimes when I look in, uh, what's it called, analytical philosophy. That the, the, it seems, if we go back to, if I can quote you, because you mentioned this, playing poker for grains of sand. You know, like, that's about as low stakes poker as it gets. You know, I, I give you three grains of sand. Oh, no. You know. So, so when I see analytical philosophy, sometimes I get the sense that the people playing this game, it's, really, it's like, like reality is a poker game where you're, you're playing for grains of sand. Like it's a really low stakes game. And that's why they don't care whether they come to any consensus at all, because after all, you win, you lose. I mean, it's no big deal either way. That's my sense of it. I don't think, that, I don't think that's philosophy. I think philosophy has a noble heritage of a, of a passionate love for wisdom. And a lot what passes for that name nowadays, I think, is a, is a sorry excuse. This Madhyamaka assertion, this perfection of wisdom assertion, Mahayana assertion, that this grasping onto inherent nature, this lies at the root of suffering, that's no parlor, parlor game. That's no low-stakes poker game. We're talking about, really, the root of suffering here. And it goes beyond simply grasping onto I and mine as being somehow separate, autonomous, and so forth. It's grasping onto all phenomena as being inherently existent, which immediately implies that if phenomena, you and I, the mind center, Thailand, etc., etc., if any of these phenomena that we apprehend, that we engage with, that we grasp onto, if any of these inherently exist, it immediately implies a type of independence and autonomy, a radical separation 
of whatever we're grasping onto, not just one's own self, but all phenomena. So now suddenly the whole of reality becomes condensed into these, these self-existent chunks, a very Newtonian worldview, actually, which has now been really shattered by the rise of quantum mechanics when we see its full implications. Um, and it really hasn't really drifted into the whole of science very deeply yet. But this grasping onto, for example, I mentioned, I think, yesterday, a, a staunch person who regards himself as a staunch patriot, an American patriot, thinking America first. But reason for that is because the borders between America and Canada and Mexico, these are, these are real. This is, America starts here and it stops there. And this is America, not one inch on the other side of the border. And the air on our side, we should really keep the air separate. We don't want to be sharing air with Mexico. That, I mean, they might be breathing some of our air. That doesn't sound good to me. And those Canadians, they should have less because they have fewer people. They should have less air. Right? And then the water, of course. And not to mention the moon. I really want to see the moon. 51st day, yay. That, but that notion of countries, of individuals, of ideological groups and so forth as having their own inherent nature, their own independent nature, is said to be a fundamental, what you could say, epistemic root of suffering. And that is just in the way we apprehend reality altogether. And these two, the self-centeredness and the grasping under true existence, that's what it's called in short, grasping under true existence, inherent existence, existence from its own side, those are the two pillars that uphold all suffering in the universe. So it's a big statement, enormous statement, no parlor game. The antidote for self-centeredness, bodhicitta. Antidote for grasping under true existence, realization of emptiness. Relative bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta. So these two, those are the great pillars of all of Dharma. So this self-centeredness is something we're born with. It's an innate or conate affliction of the mind, or how do you say? Obscuration of the mind, and likewise the grasping under true existence. We're born with it. Now, one could, I could, one could spend a lot of time, which I'm not going to right now, uh, looking at the pros and cons of self-centeredness and grasping under true existence. If we look at this from an evolutionary biological perspective, one can say, well, that actually serves you quite well. You know, if, you, if, the, if the reason for your existence, the purpose for your existence, and this is what pretty much of what is said from the perspective of evolutionary biology, you are a success. You are a success. I'm a success if you have survived and you procreated. So Regina's safe. I'm a lost cause. I am definitely, totally failure. And I'm afraid probably failure. All the monks and nuns, you know, they just opt out. Like, okay, we give. We're failures. We are losers. We're not passing on our gene pool. But if that's really the prime directive, survive, and survive long enough to procreate and take care of your young so they can survive and procreate, then one can see self-centeredness can be very useful because you're protecting your gene pool. We homo sapiens, not those Neanderthals. You know. We people of this skin color, not people of that skin color, of this ideological group and not that ideological group, even though that's not really genetic. But nevertheless, one can see that you know, the humans versus not those non-humans out there that self-centeredness actually could be good for crushing your rivals, crushing those with other gene pools, and maintaining your own. It could be useful that way. And likewise, this strong grasping on the autonomy, the clear, sharp borders 
between your group and the other group, your family, the, the not your family, and so forth, that also could be useful. Because then you know who to kill and who to protect because the barriers are so clear-cut. Right? So these two, what in Buddhism are called root, root causes, fundamental, absolute causes of suffering, they actually can quite, be quite useful for survival and procreation. But then one end, and that means they can also be useful for hedonic pleasure. You know, be a dog-eat-dog, fiercely competitive, ruthless, and perhaps somewhat dishonest businessman. You may make a lot of money. And then you can have bigger houses and more yachts and better food and some more hedonic pleasure. And then you can get really good medical care and maybe even live longer, too. And then you have a lot of mistresses and you can spawn a lot of bastards, which is good for your gene pool. Somehow that doesn't seem quite satisfying to me. And so for the survival and procreation, for hedonic pleasure, these two root causes of suffering can be very useful. Very useful. But then if you look for genuine happiness, they're completely destructive. They have no upside at all. Zero. Nada. They're actually moving full speed ahead in the opposite direction. So to apply effective remedies to innate inborn afflictions of the mind or false ways of viewing reality, such as self-centeredness and grasping under true existence, that's going to take some pretty heavy lifting, some major work, right? Major work. Cultivation of two types of bodhicitta, empowered by shamatha, that would be actually, that's the remedy. So to make a final point, and you know I really mean that, <laughs> these are innate, they're konek, lengeki, born, you're born with them, that is, you came from past lives. But then there's other types of delusion that are acquired, you have to learn them. You're not born with them. There are many examples of this, but I'll just give one. And that is the notion that everything that exists consists only of material phenomena, or space-time mass energy. But just for simplicity's sake, everything is material, is material composed of matter, or the emergent properties of matter. Nobody's born that way, believing that. I don't think anybody's born that way. But there's a view. But, and as soon as you are viewing reality that way, then, of course, viewing your mind as simply your brain, or an emergent property of brain, and viewing other people as bodies with emergent properties, and so forth, as soon as that's your worldview, not just a belief, like believe, believing that Jupiter has moons, kind of one of those inert, inert beliefs, what does it matter? You know, low-stakes poker game, once again. But it's actually when it becomes your way of viewing reality, viewing other people, and so forth, viewing other people as bodies, That just seems really, to me, immediately harsh. I'm not talking about just between the sexes. I'm just talking about viewing other people as you are the body. You are just a body. That just strikes me immediately as, whoa, that's harsh. That's, why are you thinking that? That just seems to be so mean. Dehumanizing. And yet it saturates the media nowadays. If you have a materialistic view of a way of viewing yourself and the rest of reality, and that means everybody around you, then naturally you will only value that which you consider to be real, which means your values are going to be absolutely materialistic based. Because you're not going to value anything you think isn't real. And so you will value matter and the emergent properties of matter because that's the only thing you think is real anyway. So materialistic or hedonic values are just inextricably linked with a more materialistic worldview. I don't know, see, 
I see, I've seen people try to argue contrary, and it just seems like baloney. It's just nonsense. It just seems so perfectly obvious. You value only that which you consider to be real. And if you consider only the material to be real, then your values will be hedonic. Now, as soon as you have a worldview and a set of values in place, then of course we're not just sitting around thinking. We're also very much acting. We're trying to make livelihoods and so forth, which means the way of life that's completely compatible with a materialistic worldview and a hedonic set of values is a consumer-based way of life. And that is you're successful if you're consuming, consume, con acquiring and consuming, and then polluting, because that polluting goes together with the other two. And so you will have a consumer-driven way of life. If your worldview is materialistic and your values are hedonic and materialistic, then your lifestyle is going to be materialistic too. It all goes together. You can't just pull one out and say, oh, we'll just add some Buddhism in here. I'm sorry. That's like putting a, I don't know, a rose in the middle of a desert. It's just not going to flourish there because it can't. It's toxic. So those, two, those three support each other. This is all acquired. And so once again, speaking of a high-stakes poker game, as we're trying to address the extremely urgent and manifold problems, suffering, that beset humanity today, all seven billion of us, and we read, as, as I read in news, uh, the headline a couple of days ago, that we are consuming the natural resources of the earth faster than they're being replenished, let alone the, you know, the non-replaceable ones, like oil. Well, nobody's, you know, we're not dying fast enough. We're not, you know, our bodies are not turning into oil. That's going to take a really long time. So that's not happening. So there it is. We've got a growing population. Already we're depleting faster than we're replenishing. And so this triad, this materialistic worldview, hedonic values, consumer-driven way of life, I would say quite frankly, they're killing us. And it's also killing the planet. The environmental impact, not only global warming, but in so many other ways, it's killing us. So when I criticize materialism, it's not just because I, I like to debate. I actually don't like to debate. I find it rather tedious. But it's killing us. It's an acquired delusion. And it can be remedied. It's got really practical value as well. I was reading up and, and consulting with an expert on mental, mental disease just to, within the last couple of weeks. Something came out of this research, and that is while there's a massive amount of funding for the pharmaceutical industry and so forth, and neuroscience and neurology, to try to find more and more drugs for depression, anxiety disorders, and so forth and so on. What they're finding is even though there's a rapidly growing, growing increase of knowledge about the brain, this is not correlated with a rapidly growing increase in the efficacy of drugs for treating mental disease. One is, one is growing very quickly. The other one, it's not corresponding. And so this is quite perplexing for neuroscientists. Like, hey, we know so much more now, and yet our drugs don't seem to be much better. Nothing that is, it's not comparable growth. I think there's a good reason for that. And that is, if one assumes that all mental diseases are, in fact, neurological diseases at root. So now, once again, we're trying to find the root of suffering, especially mental suffering, as in mental disease for which depression is looming very, very large on the horizon. It's growing rapidly throughout the entire world. Then if you're persuaded that it's in the brain, then of course that's where all the interest is going to go. The funding, the research, and everything will go there. But what we're finding is that drugs, apart from very extreme cases of depression, have no impact. They're no better than a placebo. And yet billions of dollars have been spent by the general public on drugs for depression, and they didn't know that they were taking something no better than a sugar pill. 
I suspect the pharmaceutical industry did, but they were keeping mum as they were making billions of dollars of profit. So I think it's very useful to draw a distinction between mental disease and neurological disease, and both need to be taken very seriously, like autism, Alzheimer's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, and a number fundamentally rooted in the brain. They may be, there may be some impact from behavior, talk theory, maybe. It really could be. That should all be research. But if we see this is really stemming from the brain, it's genetic, what have you, it's a neurological disorder, good, you found its source. Treat it neurologically. Thank you all the neuroscientists, neurologists. This is wonderful. Try to treat it. Try to prevent it. Excellent. But when it comes to anxiety disorders and depression and PTSD and ADHD, to treat them all as if they're just in the same category as autism or Alzheimer's, as if they're just brain diseases, is, what can I say, delusional. And so to seek the sources of mental diseases, mental disorders in the mind, is to have the possibility of striking at the, at the root of mental distress. And to treat neurological diseases, identifying them in the brain and trying to, ad to address that, that again is treating it at its source. So, compassion here can be just imbued with wisdom, insight. And it really has to be, because otherwise we're just treating the symptoms. Final point, and there actually is the final point. When we just make the, bring this back to our lives here, just individual, not the global issues, the enormous issues, which are so important. But just coming back now to our own lives and the people we engage with, it's very possible when, you step, when we all step out of this retreat, out of the mind center, and go out into the peripheral world. It may happen that people still rub us the wrong way. They behave in ways that we find disagreeable or really awful. Maybe also, especially when it's directed towards oneself. We don't like that. And so again, the sense, you know, I'm actually a spiritual person. I just spent eight weeks in a retreat, you schmuck. <laughs> You inferior person. <laughs> I bet you've never been on a retreat. <laughs> you should try it sometime. You'll be as humble as I am. <laughs> Schmuck. <laughs> it's very easy to look down on other people's behavior when their behavior is deplorable. And at, at that moment, our own behavior isn't quite as deplorable. And then it's easier to have that sense of elevation, looking down, looking down. Or maybe even not only looking down, but feeling really quite appalled, indignant, righteous, indignation. It doesn't go anywhere. It just makes one unhappy. And if we express it, that just makes more unhappiness. Something I found actually very helpful in this regard is that when we observe other people's behavior, that is just clearly... It's just not right. This is inappropriate. It's thoughtless. It's self-centered. It's greedy. It's delusional. It's, it's really not right. And we, we know that's the case. It's really, that's wrong behavior. Rather than just standing in condemnation of it, maybe with contempt and so forth, and criticism and so forth, judgment, big, heavy judgment, from this Mayana perspective especially, from this spirit of great compassion, another response that arise, can arise is as I observe your behavior, which is clearly bringing suffering to other people, but bringing suffering to yourself as well, may I, may I gain such wisdom, such compassion, may I mature spiritually, that I may be effective in assisting you, in helping you 
out of suffering and the causes of suffering. It's said that it's better to have a bad connection with the bodhisattva than no connection at all. And that is it better to rob a bodhisattva, steal his wallet, than to have no connection at all. He said, wait a minute, you just, you just stole the wallet of a bodhisattva? You're saying that's a good thing? Doesn't sound good to me, right? They say, better to have a bad connection than no connection at all. Because now, now if you think that I'm now inviting you all to steal wallets, and you, yeah, <laughs> no, don't go there, don't go there. But here's a, a bodhisattva principle. I think it's in, in Shantideva's work again. Even to have a negative relationship with a bodhisattva, which is not good, but it's better that than no relationship whatsoever. And why? Because the bodhisattva, a true bodhisattva, sees you, oh, you've stolen from me, you've injured me, you've insulted me, you've, done, you've harmed me in some way. The bodhisattva's response is, how may I assist you? How may I alleviate you from the mental afflictions that give rise to that behavior? May I liberate you. May I free you from the causes of suffering. May it be so. In the future life, if not in this lifetime, in the future lifetime, may I come and be of service to you. So now you've got a bodhisattva praying for you. You've got a karmic connection. There are all kinds of karmic connections, romantic connections, friendship, parent, child, and so forth. Now you've got a, a connection with a bodhisattva, you know, who's looking after you. If not in this lifetime, some future lifetime. May I come to your service and help you get to the root of your mental afflictions, free you, liberate you. May it be so. Better to have netic connection with than no connection at all. Having said that, I hasten to add, better to have a positive connection than a negative connection. <laughs> so if you meet a bodhisattva, I strongly encourage you, have a positive connection. It's actually better than having a negative connection. But as we, perhaps some of us at least here, aspiring to, be, to, aspiring to become bodhisattvas, then whenever we witness any type of behavior, that we know to be harmful, whether it's of a whole government or a political party, religious group, whatever it may be. Ah, may I awaken, may my mind become pure. May I have greater wisdom, greater compassion, greater skillful means, so that I, it, it, possibly in this lifetime, or at least in future lifetimes, I may come to your rescue, that I may assist you to get to the root of suffering and to be free. Let's practice.